Welcome to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Maria, your host. I'm excited for today's conversation, which was recorded last September 2020 during a virtual encounter around the topic of creating feminist futures. It was a real pleasure speaking with three powerful visionary feminists from around the world, Crystal Simeone, Mira Ghani, and Maria Jose Moreno, all women with amazing trajectories. So this Power in the Pandemic episode aims to amplify the conversation in a feminist spirit of co-creation and coalition building, and take this one step further. So it's a little longer than usual, but I promise that it's worth it. We'll hear all about what feminist care-centered gender justice means to them, the potential of the present moment, and what feminist futures they're building and imagining. The context we're in is one in which globally we're faced with a painful overlap of many crises, yet one in which the effects and consequences of these are unequally distributed. So we're seeing the cracks and fissures of systems that we've learned to accept as dominant or perhaps normal, which are now impossible to ignore. With today's episode, we're focusing especially on what Mira reminded us last week in the final episode of our Climate, COVID and Care series, that one of the shared solutions or antidotes to systems of violence at the root of intersecting inequalities is to foster a culture of care. The concept of care becomes pretty radical, as we must ask ourselves how to disrupt this paradigm of carelessness and cultivate meaningful solidarity with one another in defense of our collective futures. So let's turn to this incredibly fertile conversation, first hearing each of these visionary speakers introduce themselves, and soon after delving into our collective exploration of the feminist world that we can win. Remember to follow us on Instagram on PowerShifts Project, and subscribe to keep updated with upcoming changes to our podcast. Let's tune in. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Crystal Sioni. I'm based in Nairobi, Kenya. I am the director of a new initiative called the Nawi AfriFem Macroeconomics Collective. We work and I specifically work on the intersection of a pan-African feminist analysis and macro-level economic policy issues. Starting off with trade, tax and debt as our core areas of intervention. I identify as an, a pan-African feminist, which means I straddle struggles of fighting against misogyny and the patriarchy, but also from a pan-African perspective, fighting against neoliberal and very neo-colonial policies that still are very much here with us today. Yeah, that's me. Thank you so much, Crystal. We're really happy to have you. How about Mira? Can you introduce yourself for us? Yeah, hi. I'm Mira Ghani. I'm currently based in Brussels, but from Pakistan. So my intersections are somewhat similar where I am fighting patriarchy just in the kind of from the white supremacist culture perspective, being in a white dominant culture, but also the technically kind of taken us on from a colonialism perspective. I mostly work on climate justice. So I've worked with a number of uh, NGOs over a period of my professional career. And currently I'm working with community initiatives based across Europe with an organization called ICLIS. And I also do a lot of work on my own, what I call building a culture of care, which is a lot of what this conversation is about. So yeah, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mira. Thanks for being here. And uh, Maria Jose, can you introduce yourself now? Yes. Good morning, good evening, afternoon. Uh, my name is Maria Jose Moreno, and I am the director for gender justice of uh, Adoxfam International. I'm really excited to 
uh, be here and having this conversation. We have been thinking during the pandemic what uh, this means for uh, our work, uh, the work that we are doing on unpaid care work and gender, on gender-based violence, on the intersections of different inequalities and unbalance and how they can be blind spots or can be opportunities to, for us. You know? I'm uh, very happy to be in this conversation because it's key for our work. We have been working in the Confederation thinking about what it means and the objective from the beginning was to open a conversation and to build together on practical responses. This is the first of these conversations and really is very meaningful for the work we do and for the work and the challenges as feminists we have. Thank you so much, Maria Jose. And I think that leads us really nicely into, into our conversation. And I'd like to first ask you then, you just talked about paradigms that you're rethinking during this time and in the face of crisis, what we have to start shifting. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about this paradigm of ethics of care and how you see it changing the way that we talk and respond to economic climate and intersectional inequalities. Yes, well, the ethics of care, it was a conversation that started in the 80s within feminism. No? It was presented at the beginning in contrast to the ethics of justice and the ethics of rights you know, that were presented like objectivity, based in objectivity, emerging from a sense of duty. There were several feminists that started a, a conversation as well, taking issues that in the discourse had been sidelined like uh, what happened in a caring relationship, uh, for example, in a parenting with a, a child or with an elderly person, and, uh, and what happens there. There were important elements that uh, emerged, uh, for example, the relationship uh, between the carer and the person that is cared for, the voice both of the care and the person that is cared for. One, it looks at the medium and long term and it's not, for example, a domineering relationship. What is looked for, it is relationship in which both the, the person that is care and the care, uh, person that is cared for try to find the, the best of well-being. And there were several feminists uh, that started thinking that this contrast between justice and care, perhaps it was not an exclusion of one or the other, that both had a lot to contribute to the other. When we look, at, for example, at the crisis of uh, coronavirus and we look at uh, the social justice crisis and issues that emerge with people who didn't have access to health, with people uh, that uh, lose their uh, jobs and didn't have access to social security, when we look at who are these people that a lot of uh, times are 
women who provide care, who provide more unpaid and underpaid care, who are uh, racialized communities, who are migrants, who are people in situation of informality, we see that there are patterns, you know, that uh, these groups of people are not receiving the care they, they need and are not receiving the visibility and are not having the voice. And we thought that it is about time that we rethink in the way we work in development, trying to give more voice, more centrality to care, and that that will have profound consequences in the, the gaps between the, those groups, in how we address issues as gender-based violence, in how we look at new economic thinking possibilities, what are the new paradigms, in how we work in our organizations and with each other. Thank you so much. Yeah, what I'm rescuing from what you're saying is something really important about shifting away from paradigms of supposed objectivity towards more relational or relationship-centered paradigms, right? Between carer and those cared for. And making both compatible. Exactly. No, exactly. Crystal, I'd love for you to join that sort of uh, line of conversation and perhaps dig more into what kind of tools or approaches are at our disposable right now to push for this, for centering care and policy making specifically. Uh, Thanks. So I think anywhere I start off with is a little bit of hope. And this is a lot coming from me, who's lacking in hope a lot of the time doing the work that I do. It's it's hard. It's very long-term visioning. And sometimes it just feels like we don't bear any fruit of the work and the seeds that we plant. But I can see them. And a couple months ago, a friend of mine, Wangari Kinoti from ActionAid, reading this book by Dawn from 1985. 1985, such a long time ago. But it was exactly what I talk about now and think that is new and, you know, a new analysis. But really, feminists across the world have been saying these things for generations. Um, We have to keep saying them because that's the only way things change. And it sometimes feels like we're not moving anything. But really, I think we are. And especially now with COVID, and the pandemic that the entire world is going through, suddenly the term essential work, for example, is changing. Whereas, you know, the economy was structured around finance and financialization and everything was about money and capital and tax advisors and bankers. And those people were who we looked up to as important people in communities, societies, countries, right? And, and the leaders of global economy. But with COVID and economies brought down to their knees and really care being centered with this pandemic, I think that's beginning to change. And suddenly central workers are not no, no longer really tax advisors and bankers, but it's really our mothers. It's our aunts, it's supermarket workers, it's nurses, it's people who are taking care of people. In the country I live in, in Kenya, our government has now, you know, a couple of months ago declared that they're using a home-based care strategy for COVID, which sounds great, but the devil is always in the details. And we look at, well, how, how are we remunerating or training? What exactly does that mean? Because what it does seem like from a feminist perspective is, again, women are carrying the burden of a crisis that's happening, right? Now there's some recognition, but not as it should be. 
and what does that mean? But I think this is we're at a crux in, in, in history where we can begin to change the curve of how things are done with a little bit more attention towards care work and you know the care economy as a whole. Uh, we haven't been able to quantify it. There's two schools of thoughts. Are we working in the care policy advocacy space to show how it fits into the economy and how we can grow? Or are we fighting for care work to be recognized, to be remunerated, because it is a right of women to do that. Suddenly we can see who is holding up our societies, our communities, our economies, our countries, our world really. And it's not these illusionary finance, you know, gurus or whatever it is. It's everyday hardworking women who their unpaid, unrecognized labor is holding up the world. But in the same vein, I think as much as there's hope in a moment where we have to take hold of it, I think we have to be very careful to remember that this doesn't happen in a silo or a vacuum. It happens in context and nuance, and it happens in a space where I'm sitting from, where there's a very strong neo-colonial power that sits with us and sits side by side us and is financializing all aspects of life. Um, and we have to be able to remember that all oppression is linked and that all struggles are linked and that context and nuance is very separate. So what a care economy or the or care work industry looks like in the global north is very, very different for us in the global south. And I'll speak from an African perspective. Policy work and policy advances in the space is extremely different. And so as much as we're all fighting the same war, we're definitely fighting very, very different battles. We can't talk about a care economy if we're not talking about a tax justice agenda, if we're not talking about a race justice agenda, if we're not talking about an economic justice agenda. All of these things intersect and have to be analyzed in a very intersectional approach if we're going to have any movement forward. Um, and you can see it now with Corona, there's a Black Lives Matter mo movement happening at the same time. And these intersect in such strong ways. And it's very easy to put them off in and work one by one. But unless we find ways to intersect with climate, with race, economic justice, I think that's the only way we're able to, to move forward, really. Um, and I'll finally say, I think we're, we're going into a new era. And I say this a lot, and I'll say it again. We can't go back to normal because normal was the problem. And so this whole idea of building back better, I think, is, is not something that we should be focusing on. Um, I would like to just burn everything down and maybe COVID is doing exactly that and rebuilding it again. And I think that's where that's where hope lies in as well. I want to write that as a manifesto. I <laughs> was... Yeah, I think you picked up on really, really important, um, powerful aspects from the need to shift narratives around the essential labor of care work, as well as the looking in the details, looking in the nuance and really the fine grain of how these abstract notions of gender justice can actually play out in, in, in particular contexts, right? So localizing those ideas. And yeah, absolutely on interlinking, on intersectionality, on, on looking at these nodes and connecting connective tissue. I'd actually love to carry on on that thread because I think that's really important to keep the discussion at a level of sort of systems thinking and to keep our juices flowing in how we can push for a feminist future that advances and also breaks down oppression in all the other crises that we're also facing. So Mira, if you want to speak a little bit to that, so 
right now, and you know, in, in this crazy moment where we're seeing just a clash of all sorts of oppressions and crisis, how do you think we can shift away from these silos, right, of gender, climate, economic policy? How can we work at those nodes, at those intersections to join those struggles together, put them in touch and strengthen the work being done across? Thanks so much for that. That's a really vast question, but also a pertinent one, because that's what many movements have been trying to do all along. Um, for some of us, those connections are obvious. Um, for, for me, at least, um, you can't have climate justice without racial justice, without gender justice, without disability justice, without queer justice. So for me, also because of the intersections I hold within me, those are very connected. I can't think about one without the other. But just in terms of movements, I think it goes back to the original question that we're pondering and the, uh, the discussion that we're having here. It goes to changing the narrative and how we change the narrative is from changing the narrative from that one of violence to care. So for me, the root cause of everything and the kind of the base on what these very systems, unjust oppressive systems exist, are rooted in violence. There's patriarchal violence that we see every day, and especially during the pandemic. Gender-based violence and domestic violence have been at an all-time high because people have been trapped in their homes with their abusers. We've seen the carceral justice system and how it's been on a rampage. We've seen with the Black Lives Matter movement how it, the, even the pandemic hasn't stopped from the carceral justice system and the police and the cops killing Black people. We've seen how the pandemic hasn't stopped onset of climate impacts. So nothing has really stopped. And um, all of these I define as systems of violence. So the only way to shift is to shift the narrative from what centers violence, separation, scarcity, to that one of abundance, interbeing, interconnectedness, care, love. And so I think once we try to see these common threads that um, are kind of at the base of all our movements and all that we've we are asking for, everyone is asking for dignity. Everyone is asking for their right to life. Everyone is acting to be treated as humans worthy of care. And so I think that's changing the frame. And also it's a lot has to do with people in power seeding space. Power is a, something that we always miss to name. We talk about these systems of oppression that are interconnected, but we never name power. And power is where the imbalance comes from. And that's why, because there's such, because within the capitalist white supremacist system, um, there are certain values, um, certain principles under which it operates. Um, and one of those principles of that uh, is that of competition, and that creates this constant power dynamic and power struggle. So unless those in power, and those of us who are from marginalized communities that have been excluded and discriminated against, for us, this is a matter of survival. It's not just some strategy or tactic to win funding or to, to make another, form another political party. This is essential for our survivors. So while we fight to have our rights heard, to have our voices heard. Um, I think those who call ourselves our allies, and I will name white people here in particular, to cede spaces of power. And this is not just about positions of power, politicians to cede space. This is in our everyday spaces where you know that this is not your lived experience. Let the person with their lived 
lived experience talk for themselves don't represent people who don't share your lived experiences don't speak at conferences don't write papers that really you don't have the lived experience of yes you may have the knowledge of it but the lived experience is it gravitas and also um in jobs you know that people of color while they occupy in a lot of these ngos uh, most of the junior level jobs you don't see many in decision making positions and it's only when we go form our own tables and don't and refuse to come and sit on these tables that were created by white people in white in white spaces like crystal has done amazingly um set up like our own initiatives that's when we take power and so i think that's something that we need to grapple with that's something that i've had an issue with xr and a lot of these movements that are very white middle class spaces and the strategy and tactics they often employ exclude communities of color queer people disabled people it's all very top down even though they say it's central uh, decentralized it's kind of a, a paternalistic top down approach so for me we in order I'll quote um Grace Lee Boggs because I always like to tribute and I know um Crystal said that many black feminists have been talking about this for decades um so I'll kind of quote two if you allow me one is not a black feminist but lifelong activist from Detroit Grace Lee Boggs who said that in order to change the world we have to change ourselves that's kind of my motto the other one is uh, someone who now works on transformative justice Ejiri Stixen who uh, often says that our relationships will keep us alive and the third one is Sadia Hartman who's a black feminist author and this is what i root my color of care on um and this kind of describes it perfectly is that care is the antidote to violence so that's how i started and that's how uh, in this beautiful thank you so much mira yeah um i rescue what what you just summarized all of that for as care as the antidote to violence also part of that overarching solution to the roots the violent roots of all those oppressions that currently overlap and magnify each other as well and i want to also sort of explore a bit more about this narrative aspect that has been coming up right so changing narratives why is that important why should we be spending time and energy and resources in addressing and tackling and shifting harmful dominant narratives and which ones should we be addressing urgently apart from you know the the, the big sort of overarching narratives around violence which particular concrete ones should we be focusing on and in your opinion what are the, the blockages that we're encountering on the way maybe we can start with maria jose but i'd love all of your inputs into this thank you yes i think uh, narratives are so so important because they allow us and widen the our possibilities of thinking and doing or the opposite uh, they stop us before starting moving i think the first narrative that we have to to fight is uh, the one single story issue that we hear in different sectors uh, and no other option is possible no for example when we speak about economy the gdp gross domestic product is the almost only measure that is universal comparable that is telling us we know and there are countries that are starting to use them and use them during the pandemic in particular that they are for example 
subjective well-being measures that tell us as well how policies are impacting people and how they are impacting groups and how social cohesion between groups and social trust is faring. I think that is very, very important. We need as well to fight fallacies that continue to be used and without being addressed systematically as much as they tool, no? The issue of meritocracy is at the basis of our social and economic system without addressing gender inequalities, race, socioeconomic inequality, and other inequalities. No? In this pandemic, there has been as well the emergency of a strong men that, by the way, have had an appalling, very, very bad track record in addressing the, the pandemic, and, but it has come as well with a discredit of politician and politics that it came from very uh, well the, the last years I think this has to to be fault as well because if we want to have alternatives and feminist alternatives social justice alternatives we need good politicians and good politics there and not just uh, allowing a discredit that makes us uh, makes everything to to look the the same i think as well that there are very concrete uh, examples of um, uh, uh, opportunities to to think away from dominant narratives the universal basic income uh, suddenly in different forms uh, in countries affected by the pandemic, for example, it started from sounding like crazy to be a possibility. We have seen as well that uh, women that are uh, in decision-making, some of these women have made a difference. We all have heard and admire Jacinda Andern, but as well Finland and others, Germany, and how the discourse have been very different from the narrative of war against the virus, against migrants that can put us moral at risk, etc. It has been a discourse of we are in a difficult moment, a difficult in health, difficult economically, difficult environmentally. Let's be kind and be in it together, and together is caring for others as well. You know, if Crystal or Mira want to continue on this topic. Uh, yeah, so I think from where I'm sitting, the politics of language and narrative is extremely important, even on just care work, um, on record and unpaid labor. Um, I some, even just that in itself, sometimes I struggle. And because I work in the, on the African continent for the women of Africa and with them, doing work around advocacy on care is extremely difficult with African Muslim male policymakers whose response to the question of care and un unpaid labor is, well, you're taking away from a woman's ability to love her family. And that's not what we're talking about. And so it makes me question the use of care and whether we should be normalizing the word care. Or sometimes do we also want to reject that and, and call it for what it is, which is unpaid labor, because it is back-breaking labor that the women of Africa, especially in more rural areas, have to do. Carrying firewood, carrying water, taking care of children, taking care of old people, taking care of sick people, and at the expense of so many other things. I think that needs to come 
into perspective. Uh, I worry a lot about the private sector and their role in our economies and their ever-increasing influence. Every time I'm at the UN in New York, there's more and more private sector walking those halls at the expense of people like me being shut out of rooms that we should be in making to, to make some point. So I worry about that and I worry about the financialization of life. UBI, for example, is great, but if multinationals are not paying their fair share of tax, how do we pay for it? And so again, from where we all sit, things are so different and experienced in such different ways. We really have to be conscious about that. And as Mira says, really not speaking for other people, but really just passing the mic for them to speak for themselves, I think is important. We've seen the World Bank and the IMF and their response to, you know, the care economy and on and unpaid care work. And they talk about empowerment. And this is, again, how to exemplify the politics of language and narrative. They talk about care work and, and empowerment, women's empowerment. What, what do they mean when they're talking about empowerment is completely different from what I mean. And we need to really move from individually targeted approaches at, at intervention. So sort of like where I'm coming from, 50 chicken projects, food working projects, microfinance, which are good. But in terms of shifting things and shifting light, like dignity, and happiness of people and the way in which they live, it doesn't do very much. And I think for all of us, we need to shift to more systemic thinking, which is a lot harder and really means confronting us, ourselves, our institutions, our politics, our being, our space, the space that we all take up, I think is an important thing in, in the work towards shifting politics around narratives, around language, and really coming to a point where um, justice is served, really. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I'll start by invoking another ancestor. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable, but then so did the divine rankings. It's the same thing. How do we shift narrative of capitalism where productivity is valued, where success is defined in certain terms, where efficiency is paramount, where objectivity, as Maria Jose said, is paramount, where other forms of knowledge, ways of being, other traditions are completely, completely sidelined. And this is where we can't have a universal narrative of everything. Each local community understands its needs. It understands its context and it knows its solutions. So there's a concept of bioregions within indigenous cultures, and that's where you know your environment, where you're in the right relationship with the environment, with beings around you, and also with each other. And being in the right relationship with yourself, with those you work with, with those around you, with your family members, loved ones, and also your community at large. And that community could be anything. You can define it any which way. But the issue is that we end up in silos because we don't consider community wider than maybe our family. So for me, a lot of it, this about shifting the narrative is going back to some traditional knowledge and traditional ways of being, which at least in African, Pan-African, South Asian, indigenous cultures is paramount. It's this idea of community and being there for each other and caring for each other and care means different things and you can show up in different ways so that very that is important I think um, this move from the very capitalist white supremacist individualistic thinking towards community thinking and community care like the way the wellness industry defines care has hijacked what we understand by care it's all about self-care and and I'm fine with that if that's what you need especially during the pandemic indulge in 
that kind of luxurious self-care. But for me, care and self-care is an extension of community care. For me, I can only heal and be well in community. That's been my personal learning and my personal journey, but also lots of people that I've heard with who practice community care, and especially during the pandemic, we've seen the rise of mutual aid groups and other kinds of community formations. And that's showed us that, yes, you need certain systemic interventions, but I think a lot of it for me is moving from institutions and organizations that I call are life-threatening. So that would be the fossil fuel industry, the prison industrial complex. So kind of moving towards abolition of all that. And that's why I call myself an abolitionist. And putting the same resources into community level practices, traditions, putting resources in community where they can take, take care of themselves the best way they know how. So it's kind of divesting from life-threatening institutions and investing in life-giving institutions and organizations and community for me is how we kind of need to move and and challenge this narrative narrative of capitalism and white supremacy that wants us to be more individualistic more separated more fearful and that's the polarized politics we see globally now and especially with the u.s elections coming out coming in november it's more polarized than ever and it it's sad with the domination of U.S. politics that all of us maybe know more about U.S. politics than we do our own local politics. But that's how much, that's how domination works, and that's how cultural domination works. And that's also something that we need to think about very deeply. Yeah, this is this is wonderful, and I think it speaks to so many different levels of of analysis, not just at the linguistic level or semantic level, which we were, we were just saying, you know, but scratching that surface and naming power, naming the lived experience of those narratives. And also talking in specifics, what Crystal was really, I think, importantly remarking is the importance of localizing what that narrative really means in a particular context. Does it mean unpaid labor? Is that what we're really talking about? And should we be naming it as such, you know, instead of letting it be sort of also financialized or co-opted by a system which can turn it into a wellness industry or a another factor to to buy into. And yeah, echoing what has been common knowledge for epidemiologists all along, we realize now that we're only as healthy as the least healthy member of our community, right? And that deep interdependence comes through and it presents a grand opportunity for many more to start to care about care beyond the individual, beyond healthcare, beyond the wellness industry beyond self-care mantras and, and yoga retreats. And so it's really repoliticizing that well-being, repoliticizing what we mean by, by caring and by solidarity. What does that mean? And Mira talks about divesting from those life-threatening institutions and investing in life-giving institutions. I really love that. Love that little summary. I wanted to ask, do you have any more principles or practices and concrete, you know, what what can be, we invest in, in not just in resources, but energy and action and focus? What can we invest in to really open towards embedding care as an organizing principle for our economies? And I'd love for you each to speak from your particular context, if that's possible, from your position where you're based or your community or how you identify your action reaching most impact. 
if I may, although I spoke last. So from my particular vantage point, a lot of uh, community care for me starts, of course, with my immediate family and then the communities I'm involved with. And practically how it's done is actually I'm going to pay homage to Miamangis, who has the pods concept for the Bay Area, where you create these pods of um, community care where you um so not everyone's kind of the care in the caregiver's role all the time that people who are doing the caregiving are also receiving the care at some point so that's something that i really really value but just in terms of coming from um, the ngo culture and the <laughs> ngo industrial complex for me really the work has to start from within and within the climate movement and within the environmental justice movement we really are bad at caring for our own people the reason why I burnt out and left the climate movement was because lack of care. And this is why I started working on this work. It's my lifelong mission to transform the area, uh, the communities I exist within because I can't function otherwise. I'll burn out or die. You know, it, it had a really deep impact on my mental health, my physical well-being, being in these spaces which are not only dominated by white people, but white culture. And white culture has certain characteristics, um, which I can share later, but perfectionism, competition, efficiency, rationality, no space for emotions, no space for caring for each other, no support systems with our NGOs. I mean, in this way, sometimes corporations are better because they have certain policies around harassment, around bullying, around what happens if somebody transgresses upon somebody else's well-being? Our NGOs have none of that. And these spaces, like sometimes, are the spaces we spend most time in. We spend most time in organizing spaces, um, in social justice spaces, in climate justice spaces, in feminist spaces. And this is where we have to start. For me, if we don't start from within, if we don't do the inner work, each and every one of us individually, but as community, if we don't lay the foundations of that work, nothing that we do policy-wise will ever matter or will be sustainable or regenerative. So we have to create these spaces within our communities first and then look at the external. So in, then out. I'm not very religious, but if I did go to church, I'd definitely be going to the Church of Mira. <laughs> um, everything she speaks, I'm like, yes! Um, definitely. I think it starts, like, I do the work on the tax justice and making sure that there's policy and making sure we're influencing the policy. But like Mira said, I think we need to work a lot more with, within ourselves, within our organizations. There's a Twitter thread last week um, talking about meetings and, and African women in Sydney. And it just seems like that's the top thing that we all need more of. And so every time I, I host a meeting, I try, if it's possible, to have people find back later on in the day just so that they can sleep in a little bit. And just that, the responses to it are like, oh my God, I got to sleep in without the kids, without like all of this. It was so glorious. So little things like that or making sure, sure that there's childcare facilities when you're having meetings so that mothers can come with children. We can't be talking about care work policies if we don't have them internally ourselves. And like Mira said, sometimes private sector does a whole lot better than us. It's embarrassing how many civil society organizations have breastfeeding rooms, for example, or child care spaces. I can't even name one, but I can name a few private sector organizations that have it. And so I think we really need to walk the talk when we're having international meetings. I, it's a running joke on the continent. And I think there's been a few pro pro uh, blog posts written about this. You know, all you get is a map 
um, with, you know, this is this is how you take the train to your hotel and you're landing in the middle of the night. You don't probably don't speak the language or you don't know how to navigate the space. But how can we do that in a caring way? You get to the hotel after midnight, they're asking you for credit cards. We don't use credit cards on the continent mostly. You can't check in if you don't have it. And it's those it's attention to the details that makes life a little bit more bearable. And I think those little things that we do have such an impact and really show, begin to build a culture of care. And we can't just talk about it in policy documents and in policy spaces. It's how we live. It's how we breathe. It's how we talk. It's, how, it's what we do on an everyday. It's what feelings we give in, within the environment that we're, that we're operating in and how we make people really feel. And is it, is it a space of real care? And yes, the work needs to be done, but the work needing to be done in that very efficient, very like pushy way is also a very capitalist thing. And it's a very colonial way of business. And so I think we need to disinvest, as, as Mira says, divest in, in that way of work and really, really recreate and restructure and reimagine what life, what work could be like if we're ever going to push for the same policies within our governments. Yes, uh, really very aligned with Crystal and, and Mira. It's um, a paradox, or perhaps it's not a paradox, but a consequence that we speak more than ever about wellness, but it's in a lot of countries, for example, we see more bar burnout than ever. In Europe as well, the, we speak that the, the, the millennials are the, the burnout generation, that self-exploitation is being considered self-realization, no? and this as well is a link to the narratives that we were speaking at, at the beginning. No? And this self-exploitation and need for perfection, it is even more acute in women, no? That have to be perfect in the house, perfect uh, as caregivers, perfect as workers. And it's taking a toll, it's taking a toll in our well-being, sometimes in our uh, mental health, in our creativity, in, in our uh, happiness, no? And I really think uh, that uh, both in the private sector, in the third sector, it is a narrative that needs to a lot of self-discipline not to get into that, you know? uh, a lot of self-discipline not to open the computer on Saturdays and Sundays to, to see the, the email. At Oxfam, we have developed feminist principles and we are very far from, from perfect, but these principles are there as a reminder of the culture in the organization we want to have, you know, about power sharing and listening to, to voices, about diversity, reminding that the personal is politics, uh, politic and there is no way in which we can talk about one without talking uh, about the other, about the issue that there is no feminine economic or social justice without uh, gender justice. We all try to remind each other um, and develop behaviors that, uh, that go in that direction. But uh, uh, having said that, uh, I absolutely agree that uh, sometimes there is a, an important gap between the, that aspiration, our, our lived realities, no? 
and that perhaps the, the only way to change those collective practices is to change them together, no? because when one does it um, individually, one doesn't change social norms. No? In the best of cases, one feels a bit better, but in order to produce massive transformation, we need to, to do it together. Having said that, I think uh, there are as well practical ways in which we can support uh, this self-care and sharing of care in, for example, having equal parental leave for uh, men and women, we are contributing already to say care is a responsibility for all. No? Having good facilities for caring in, that are shared privately and public is as well an acknowledgement that care is important and is central. And without care, none of us will be here no? in order to be adult uh, human beings dis discussing uh, societies, we have received a, a lot of amount of care at different points uh, in our life. Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much for all of these. Now, I think we have to start wrapping up. So I'd love to throw this last question to take on what uh, Maria Jose just touched on, which is sort of that responsibility within our institutions and, na and naming power as well and, and what role do donors, NGOs, INGOs have in helping craft this feminist future, this care-centered future? And how could that politics of care look like within these organizations that concern themselves with international development, so-called development? What kind of practices, uh, what kind of principles, what kind of repoliticization of care must happen within those organizations? And what role do these have within the larger ecosystem of, of shifts? I see Mira nodding, so maybe you can, you can give it a start. I, I think I touched upon it a little bit earlier, where I said we have to institute care and visibilize care within our organizations. Because e even if you look at any organization, a lot of the burden of care work, like who's going to care for how the meeting is happening, who's caring for the ordering the food, who's caring for where accommodation is happening, all of that is mostly done by women, even if that's not their job within the organization. And men hardly contribute to that. Within households, it's the same thing. So within, I think within our environments, as um, international NGOs, care also has to be seen as an act of solidarity. It has to be in your values. It has to be a stated value, but then it also has to be operationalized. A lot of the, the times we have all these wonderful values on our websites, diversity, equity, inclusion, but none of it is operationalized. People can't even recall what values and principles that organization operates under. So uh, for me, a lot of the work that I do with organizations personally is how to operationalize these values and how to put in support and care practices within your organization, how to visibilize care work, how to name who's doing it, and then hold others accountable. If somebody says that, okay, and accountability, I guess, is another thing I want to name, which is a key to all of this. You can't have any systems of change without accountability practices. So you have to put in measures. Um, if somebody says that they're going to care for some particular aspect, then you have to be able to hold them accountable to that. And um, I think uh, we've all learned from the Me Too movement that uh, accountability can happen in the right way or the wrong way. 
where you see tons of apologies flying at, around when somebody does something wrong or somebody is called out. Um, and now there's a formula for that apology too, but then there's no accountability process. And then when there is a call for accountability, then, then it's shunned as call-out culture. Call-out culture is a tool to hold people accountable. It's not to actually cancel anyone. Nobody ever who's been accused of any wrongdoing has ever actually been canceled. And so now we see a lot of conservative right-wing movements really, you know, pushing for this narrative where they're saying, oh, call-out culture is bad and cancel culture is bad. But those are just calls for accountability. And so I think whatever systems we built in internally, accountability has to be a large part of that. I mean, there are many ways of doing it. Um, for each organization, it can depend. But one way that I start with with organizations is ensuring that you have spaces where you meet together outside of work, where you create space for people to air out their concerns and even their grievances. And that the, if grievances are aired, then they're followed through. And then it's also setting up simple things like setting up a, a Google Sheet where people list their needs and then other colleagues finding ways of meeting those needs. It's very, very simple things that you can do in your organizations. And um, another thing is appreciation for those who are showing up and doing this care work and then talking about it so that it can be shared. It's simple conversations. It's really listening to each other, having a conversation with each other. It doesn't take much. You don't need to set up a whole engine of things to start with putting in support systems. Yeah, I'd like to follow from Mira and say I think um, it's operationalizing it because even as you know, I, I, I used to work with Feminit and my burnout was quite serious by the time I was leaving. And that's the same narrative is across the board with a lot of feminist organizations, women's rights organizations, progressive social justice organizations. And I think we know theoretically what we should be doing and how we should be doing it, but the budgeting for it is just never done. Um, the time for it to be done is never set aside. And so all it becomes is an agenda point of discussion at every mid-year retreat or end-year retreat. But beyond that, nothing is really happening. Even simple things like providing sanitary towels and tampons in bathrooms is such a struggle, even in women's rights organizations. And, and like I always say, the devil is always in the details. It's a little things that build up into the grander things. But I think we also need to decolonize the notions of care and what does that mean? Um, and what does care look like on the continent where I'm from, for example, when I need to take a day off to look after my aunt or my uncle or whatever, because family ties are sometimes a little different and the way we interact with society is a little bit different. And I think there needs to be narratives that are deeply rooted in cultural um, situations. And again, culture is not static, it evolves. And that narrative needs to evolve just, as, just the same way in tandem as the culture is evolving. And I think that's important to do in a decolonized way. So there isn't just one blanket narrative across the board, but you know, it's nuanced, it's contextualized, it's really real and intimate to the people that are experiencing it and living it, so I think is important. And then at that point, we can come together in solidarity. And I think those are two pieces of work that have to work together, but are equally important as well. Yeah, I'll stop there.
Mm, completely aligned with what Crystal and Mira have said. I, I think that uh, the question of care, yes, um, we need uh, to develop a, a culture of the organization that uh, centers it and that is uh, visible, that it becomes visible and not invisible as many times is uh, when it is not discussed, not measured, not, not a question. No? I think as well that a way of showing care over procedures and measure what you treasure. No? For example, if we know labor market is um, racist, is sexist, equal wage is a way of showing care no? and having monitor uh, of these gaps differences are as well a way of showing care of particular groups the promotion of uh, equal opportunities and ensuring that mothers are not penalized we know that mothers are particularly penalized in the in the labor market is a, a way as well of showing care if we say that we are anti-racist we need to have targets and we need to have management structures and organizational structures that show that and the opposite is careless and I think as well that the way in which we work where we put our attention show as well uh, if we are developing care and for whom no I think that uh, for example in in Oxfam the issue about advocating for a um, people's vaccine is uh, showing care as well for uh, uh, people that in given circumstances, if we apply neoliberal models, cannot uh, perhaps access it. We are as well working on landing what it means, a feminist economic transformation, no? and working with organizations and think tanks to, to try to develop a particular way forward. You know? Looking as well at our uh, uh, partners, now we are uh, developing a, a, it's a survey about uh, how the uh, women rights organizations have been affected by the pandemic. We know that in some countries, uh, human rights activists and women rights activists have suffered a lot of violence, uh, fatal violence, and uh, and in other cases, well, their uh, their voices have been persecuted, uh, or or they have uh, stopped from accessing funding. No? We want to better know what is happening there in order to see how better it is possible that we work uh, together to, to address it. And we are looking as, as well about the intersections of patriarchal violence, how police brutality, uh, gender-based violence, the, uh, perhaps the rise in, in maternal mortality because sexual and reproductive health have suffered and so on, are uh, affecting as well and uh, uh, care to uh, in in different groups and how it is possible in our uh, work perhaps changing our uh, agenda to better address it uh, both in our culture 
procedures and indicators, and as well uh, our relationships with uh, with partners and our work to transform the world. All right, thank you so much, all of you. Thank you for tuning in to such an idea-packed episode. And thank you again to the wonderful women who contributed their time and ideas to this convening. What came up repeatedly during the conversation was the importance of thinking in terms of relationships and networks. So giving more attention to relational thinking and to processes, not just putting energy into the outcomes that we hope to see. Another principle that came up to guide our work in building feminist futures is plurality and the work of countering single stories of well-being. We can continue asking ourselves and our spaces of action some questions, like what does living carefully look like and what does care look like in practice? I hope you go away with some hopeful and critical questions so that we can learn together to center regenerative practices for ourselves, our communities, and also our world at large in the systems that we continue to recreate. Remember to follow us on Instagram on PowerShifts Project and subscribe to keep updated with upcoming changes to our podcast. Thanks for listening.